We read it from Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Just a few passages as kind of a starting place. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. It's a snapshot of a one brief incident in the life of the Lord that explains exactly what the Bible is all about. The Bible was never intended to be a science book. Although there are many scientific facts in the Bible that were recorded over 3,000 years ago that man has only recently discovered in the last two centuries. A lot of scientific facts are listed in the Bible. But it's not intended to be a science book, so it's not a thorough, exhaustive history of the geology of the world. And there's where a lot of people see a lot of problems because that's not cataloged in here. But it's not intended to be a science book. It is not a record of all human history uh, everywhere in the world. And a lot of people have a problem with the Bible because they say the American Indians are not mentioned in there and these other peoples are not mentioned in there. Well, throughout the Old Testament, other nations are mentioned, though not by name. God is specifically mentioned, go to the nations, plural. Even though they're not mentioned by name, it was never meant to be a geography book of all the lands all over the world. So what is the whole nature of the Bible? And here's where you begin to understand why a lot of science is not mentioned, a lot of human history and political history is not mentioned. The Bible is a detailed account focusing on the work of God to bring the Savior into the world in order to redeem lost humanity. So therefore, geology, science, climatology, some other lands, they're irrelevant to the focus of this work. They're mentioned as they are relevant, and they are in here. But we don't toss the Bible out simply because all the questions we have about science and the creation and all that are not mentioned. This is what the Bible's all about. A detailed account of the primary work of God to bring the Savior into the world because none of this matters if humanity stays lost. So therefore, the primary focus of the Bible is the work of God. We see through the Bible, God at work. And this passage of scripture is a great illustration of exactly what the scripture focuses on. God at work. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go, tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today and tomorrow that and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together, please. Probably thank you for this word. We thank you for your word that tells us you're at work. And Father, we ask that we would focus on your work as well. The work of reaching the lost with the message of love. Thank you for this work. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that comes through the resurrection from the dead. And thank you, Father, that we're allowed to be, be part of this work and help us see our part in your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God is at work. Two aspects of God's work we'll focus on this morning. First of all, God is at work despite the efforts of powerful and hostile enemies. In this past description, we come right in on the middle of a situation, but some of the Pharisees broke in on what Jesus was teaching, and they said, on that very day, the Pharisees came to him and said, you need to get out of here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, that's a bit of a surprise, because if you look a little bit earlier in chapter 11, verse 53... Chapter 11, verse 53, let's look at the attitude of the Pharisees toward Jesus. As he said these things to him, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to assail him vehemently and cross-examine him about many things, lie in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. And as we mentioned, I believe, last week, they sought to kill him. So now we have some Pharisees coming saying, you better get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Exactly. What, what was this all about? Was, was this an expression of care? Probably not. You see, Jesus was in Perea, Herod's region. But also he was in the region of these Pharisees that came to him. And as long as Jesus was in the region, people were coming to Jesus and the attention was on Jesus, not on them. As long as Jesus was in the region, their authority, their power, their sway over the people was getting more and more diluted and weakened. They wanted him out. How's the best way to get him out? Well, let's just be friendly to him and say, you need to get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, we understand some things about Herod. If you look back in chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear these things? And he sought to see him. Now you might say the fact that it was just curiosity, of Herod wanting to see Jesus, to zero in on that one word. And I think just about every English translation I looked at said he was perplexed. 
Now, the word perplexed could mean confused, didn't have all the answers, but the original language says Herod was troubled. See, he wasn't just curious about Jesus. Jesus shook him up. Now, how could this be? Herod was one of the most powerful men in the region. Herod, of course, answered only to maybe one more officer before Caesar. He was one of the most powerful men in the region. He had legions of soldiers at his command. So with all this power, all this wealth, all this authority, Jesus shook him up. So these people were probably correct when they said, Herod wants to kill you. Because they saw what he did to John the Baptist. John the Baptist shook him up. And he had him beheaded. So they came to Jesus and said, he wants to kill you. You better get out of here. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and I'll reach my goal on the third day. Wow. It doesn't sound like Jesus is afraid of Herod. He said, go tell that fox. He calls him out. He calls him out. Go tell the fox. He doesn't just say, nah, I'll just stick around. He says, you go back and send a message to Herod. You go tell that fox. Now you might say, now wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus being a, a bit disrespectful to the leader of the land? Well, you have to understand, Jesus was a prophet. In addition to being the Messiah, he indeed was a prophet. Prophets always, throughout the history of Israel, had liberty to confront the leaders of the land who were wayward and out of God's plan. They always did, and they always shook them up. And Jesus even mentions prophets were killed and they were stoned. Why? Because they always spoke truth to power and confronted those leaders in the land. So shook him up. So he called him a fox. Now, what is this business of Jesus called Herod a fox? He could have called him a lot of things, and he could have just said, you go tell Herod that I'm going to stay here today and tomorrow and the third day. I'm not leaving. But he said, go tell that fox. What is it about a fox? What is it about Herod? Well, a fox is a sly animal. Let me, let me put that different. A fox is sneaky. A sneaky animal. However, a fox, especially in Jesus' day, was considered to be a cowardly animal. Now that calls Herod out pretty good. And it's quite right. Because you remember this whole episode of beheading John the Baptist. Sounds like, well, he's pretty much in charge. He was not in charge. A teenage girl was in charge. You see, Herod threw a party. And a little teenage girl danced in front of him. And he was so enthralled and had a crush on this little teenage girl. He said, you tell me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I'm Herod. I can do it. What do you want? She went back to her mama and her mama said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She told Herod that. Herod was sad about that. He didn't want to do that. 
But who was calling the shots that day? Little teenage girl and her mom. He was afraid of them. He was afraid of losing face in front of them. So when Jesus said, you go tell that fox, yes, he was a sneaky guy, but he is also a cowardly guy. And also have to understand this, Herod was in power. He liked to think he was in charge. There are several animals that are used in biblical times to denote power. One of them is a lion. One of them is a bull. None of them a fox. So while he may have called him a fox, which means he's a sly, maybe a slightly intelligent animal, he's way down the food chain when it comes to powerful animals. So he said, he's no lion. He's no bull. You go, call, you go tell that fox, that little bitty, small animal that slinks around, can't really stand up to a fight. You go tell him, I have no intention of going anywhere until I am through. You see, the fact of this matter, it shows his awareness of the heart. It's quite interesting of all the scholars that I read, and I read some of the, some of the most recent scholars, but all the way back to the 1700s, Matthew Henry goes back to the original language, and it's quite interesting the original language says this way, you go tell that fox and this one, I'll stay as long as I like. Now, who else was he calling out? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. He knew they wanted him out and he knew they wanted to kill him. He knew that they were trying to catch him in his words. So instead of just saying, you go tell that fox, he said, he's a fox and you're a fox. And I don't fear either one of you. Wow. Jesus is going to work as long as he wants to work and where he wants to work. God is at work regardless of the hostility of any leader or culture. And he makes sure that Herod knows something. This is the wisdom of Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He said, I don't want you to go tell Herod what I'm doing. He said, I'm going to cast out demons today, tomorrow, and the third day. What's the significance of that? Well, here's the significance of that. Could Herod do that? Absolutely not. You th Herod, do you think you're in charge? Let me tell you what I'm doing down here. I'm casting out demons. Can you do that? Oh, no, you don't have any authority over demons. You go tell Herod... I'm curing diseases. Herod, can you do that? Oh, no, you can't do that. You don't have any authority over diseases. Hmm. So who's really the one with authority here? Jesus Christ. Herod had authority over some people. Herod had some power in one region. But Herod had no real authority. Jesus is the one in charge. So he said, you go tell that fox I'm the one that's doing things he could never, ever do. And I will do them as long as I have work to do here. I will be at work. So he boldly challenges human hostility. And he says this, there will be no human that will have any negative effect on my plans. I will work. I will work here 
I will work through history. I will work all the way into the future until this world is over, pretty much is what he was saying. I will work today, tomorrow, and the third day I'll reach my goal, and I'll reach the goals that I have set. Jesus says God is at work despite the efforts of powerful and hostile enemies. But then there's another factor that we go all the way back to the Old Testament to look at. When there's work to be done, sometimes there's another supposed hindrance to God's work. Go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, all the way back into the Old Testament. It's before the book of Psalms. It sounds like a prophet, but he's way back before the book of Job. Nehemiah chapter 1 We'll just start in verse 1. Read a few verses here. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, I was in Shushan, the citadel. And Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When the Jews were taken away into Babylonian captivity, not everyone was taken. Some were left behind. Those that are left behind were in a bad way because the wall that protected them around Jerusalem was completely destroyed by their marauding armies. Nehemiah gets word of this, and we understand he's quite concerned, and that is, of course, reasonably so. Down in verse 17, he prays about it, and he says, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them, The hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also the king's words, which he has spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. They set their hands to this good work. He prayed about it. He sought God's leadership about it. And he knew that this was the work that God had for him. God would be at work to build this wall. So there was a wall to be built. And then we see in chapter 3, the laborers who worked together. The whole chapter reads like this. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, and the priest built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built Next to them, Zachur, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, and next to them, and next to them, over and over, we have people who are working together side by side. Everyone 
has their task to do. Everyone has their section of the wall. Everybody has their part. Nobody could do it all. But they could do their part. And they did their part shoulder to shoulder with somebody else that was doing their part. Now here we come to the little hiccup. In chapter 3, verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Uh-oh. We have the Tekoites. That's the men of Tekoa. The men of Tekoa traveled 11 miles one way to be at that gate and work on it. Something else about the men of Tekoa, if you look in verse 27, after them the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. The Tekoites had two sections of walls. Man, these guys were busy. They were working over here. They had another group working over there. They lived 11 miles away and they came daily there's a list later on of all the people who dwelt in Jerusalem. The Tekoites aren't there. They walked over there every day to work on that wall. A very deliberate investment of time and energy in the work of the Lord. But here's the hiccup. But their nobles, the leaders of Tekoa, did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Hmm. The leaders of Tekoa, it says they didn't put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. That tells me they didn't even go over there. In fact, it gets even more detailed than this. I think the King James Version said they didn't put their necks to the work. Now, what does that tell me? They wouldn't even turn their head and look that way. They wouldn't go. They weren't there. They didn't care. They didn't even think about it. They were lazy and different and absent. That is the nature of the leaders of Tekoa. They were indifferent. They didn't care. They didn't even look toward what God was doing. They didn't even look at it. Why? They had other things going in their life. They had other things to do. They had other places to be. So they weren't where the work was going on. And even though they didn't even look that way, look in chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? In this group of God's people, you had folks that really didn't care a lot about the work that was going on. They didn't care a lot about coming and being there. They didn't even want to look that way. Totally indifferent to the work of God. Totally absent when it came to doing something. They did nothing. However, it didn't stop the work of God. God will work despite hostility, despite indifference, his work will go on. However, there's a clear warning, and we don't want to miss this. God's going to work. God will work with us. God will work 
through us. God will work without us, but he's going to work. He will work. But look at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. There's a lot of sad situations in the Bible. This is a pretty sad one. And he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by his hands. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and believed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief, because of their indifference to him, because of their low esteem of him. He says, was, was the power of Jesus then limited? Absolutely not. Jesus worked, but listen to this, he worked somewhere else but he's going to work and here's the sad part there's the people in town they had heard about all these mighty works they had done they had heard about stuff going on they had heard about jesus working they didn't see it because they really didn't care because they minimized the person of jesus and because of their unbelief and lack of investment in his work they didn't see much they didn't see much. So he asked the question, have you seen the hand of God work? When we talk about God's hand at work, do people say, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I've never been able to look back and see God do something. It's exactly what this is going on here. You see, when indifference comes and we don't partake in God's work, then we don't see God's work. There's another passage, this is where we're closing. It's Luke chapter 19, verse 37. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. It's the triumphant entry. We, we look at this in detail around Easter time, but there's, there's, there's one passage here that's an exclamation point to this whole section on God will work despite indifferent and absent workers. Luke chapter 19, verse 37, he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Did you catch that? They were happy. They were rejoicing. They were in the party. 
They were having a wonderful time because they saw Jesus coming into town and they began to praise God for all the works they had seen and all the work they had seen God do. Now in the book of Matthew chapter 21, he lists another group of people. Another group of people said this, who is this? Boy, what's going on here? We don't understand this. Why? Difference in two groups of people. Here's a group of people who invested their lives and were there with the work of Jesus and they saw the work of Jesus. Here's another group of people didn't care, didn't come, didn't participate, didn't watch, didn't invest their lives and they, Jesus comes into town. They don't have a clue. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand. Now who among us can rejoice and say, we've seen God at work? See, God's going to work with us or without us. So you see, what's the big deal then? If he's going to work, why does he need me? Oh, the big deal is this. We miss out. We miss out when we don't follow Jesus Christ and see him at work. God will work. He is still saving souls and he's still changing lives. He's saving souls and changing lives through the work that's going on here at this church. He's saving souls and changing lives through conferences, through camps, through Sunday school, through Bible school, through the Awana work, through our, our benevolent ministries. He's changing lives everywhere. Are all of us going to be a part? Don't be like the leaders of Tekoa who don't even turn their heads and see what's going on. You see, when we're a part of the work, we rejoice in the work. When we're not a part of the work, we just scratch our heads. I don't know what the big deal is. Don't miss out. We prepare for an invitation on him. And, and what is this work? Well, we go back to square one. A lot of things the church does, and I'm glad we're busy in a lot of things. But with every single one of them, we focus in on God's work in this world to reach lost humanity with news about the Savior. That is the whole goal of this book. It's a history of God bringing the Savior into the world to reach lost humanity. The whole goal of everything we do at the church, the work of God, focuses on this one thing. Lives are changed and souls are saved and people are salvaged and brought into a place of dignity and honor and hope. That's the work of God. Nothing will stop the work. He'll work in us. He'll work through us. He'll work here. Or he'll work somewhere else. He's going to work. I personally like the idea of being a part of that work. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you've got to be a part of the family before you can be a part of the work. If you're here and you're part of the family, make sure you're part of the work. If God is directing you in any way with any decision you need to make, this is the time and place as we stand and sing. Number